All right, welcome everybody to our first session of Introduction to the Reformation. This class is a, an elective class in our what we call Community Institute. And many of you know, but for the sake of those who don't, and a reminder to those of you that have heard it but perhaps forgot, the way Community Institute is structured, there are core classes that we encourage everybody to take. And we're now offering those core classes on Sunday mornings during the 11 o'clock hour. In fact, just this past uh, Sunday, we started one of those core classes, Master Plan for Life. We're going to be doing this for the next 20, now seven weeks. It's a 28-week curriculum, and it goes through the great doctrinal themes of the Bible. So if you want to take that and you didn't get one of the notebooks... You can get one next door in the Resource Center and then be here at 11 o'clock on Sunday and you can take that uh, first of two core classes. We have another one called How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible next fall. I'll be doing that one during the 11 o'clock hour on Sundays. And then on Wednesdays, we offer, as I say, elective classes. And those include books of the Bible, so Bible uh, book studies, but also topical studies like the one that is going on Uh, next door this way on the subject of Islam. History, we're going to be looking at the uh, Reformation, but then also we're going to devote a lot of these classes on Wednesdays to practical application of Scripture Christian living. So on Wednesday nights, there are elective classes, but elective classes of various sorts in those categories, books of the Bible, topics, history classes, and then practical applications Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, we have the, uh, the core classes. Now, we've chosen the Reformation for one of these elective classes this semester because, many of you know, this is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And it began on October 31 of 1517. So on Halloween next month, that will be exactly the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther sparked a revolt against the Roman Catholic Church, that has affected all of us to this day, and the issues that were raised at that time still resonate and have repercussions to this day as well. So it's a good reason to offer the class now because it's the 500th anniversary. But why should you care about history at all? Many people don't. And if you'll turn in your notebook, you should have received a notebook at your seat. So if you'll turn in your notebook to the very first page, the course description, it says at the top. So pass the table of contents. And then course description. So why should you care about history at all? I say at the top of that page, it's a sad fact that in our culture, the study of history in general and church history in particular, are largely neglected. There are many reasons that could be cited for this trend, but chief among them is the independent, individualistic mindset fostered by American democracy and absorbed by the majority of evangelicals. Such thinking tends to create an arrogant self-sufficiency that abhors any appearance of constraint by tradition, or I say there or anything else for that matter, And as a result, the many advantages of a thorough grasp of history are lost. Now, that's a mouthful. I say that 
this independent, individualistic mindset is fostered partly by American democracy. Now, when I say that, I don't mean I'm against democracy. Uh, in fact, quite the contrary. Uh, it's the uh, best form of government that uh, there is other than a theocracy run directly by God, which we will have in the kingdom in the, in the future. But good things in the hands of fallen people become distorted. So the idea in democracy in the hands of fallen people is power is in my hands. I create my own world. So why do I need to care about what people did in the past? So that's what I mean by that. And you have a lot of people who have that sort of individualistic, who cares about old dead people and what they did in the past. And so there's this deprecation of the value of history. So what are these advantages? And I have some of them listed for you there. First, the study of history develops an ability to anticipate trends before they occur. Historical events occur in a pendulumatic fashion. That is, men tend to behave in reaction to events. This, coupled with the fact that historian George Santayana has said, history repeats itself, allows one who possesses a working knowledge of history to often see that we've been here before and to take action as appropriate. So that idea is true even within your own lifetime, even within just a, a few decades. If you live long enough, then you will find that I've seen this movie before. I've seen politicians who have come along and who have said whatever they're saying. I remember somebody else who did that. So if you just live several decades, you'll see this kind of tendency to repeat. And it's true not only over decades, but it's true over centuries as well. If you know something about history, you know that it teaches us the mistakes, for example, that world powers have made. You've had world empires over the years, over the centuries. And if you study the Roman Empire, if you study the British Empire, you'll see some common themes about mistakes that they made. They overextended themselves. They became arrogant with regard to their military might and ability. They decayed on the interior. And as a result of those and other factors, they are no longer world powers. In the case of Britain, still a very powerful country, but a shell of what it used to be when it was an empire. Now, does any of that stuff I just said sound familiar? And dangerous. But history is what teaches you that. So secondly, historical inquiry creates a sense of stability. One of the many dangers of our fast-paced society is the loss of historical moorings. The resultant make-it-up-as-we-go approach creates uncertainty about whether such untested methods are indeed best. So the things we decide to do kind of on the fly, how's that going to work out in the future? If we ignore history and we just act like we're creating things anew every 10 years, then how's all that going to work out? So as an example, there are a number of factors that contributed to the acceptance of same-sex marriage. But one of those is the lack of the ballast that a knowledge of history provides. Did you know that in the lifetime of every person here, 
Every person in this room, and I don't know how old everybody is, and we've got some of our young people here. But still, within the lifetime of the youngest person in here, anybody that's 16 or over, we've seen a radical shift. The first time in the history of the world that same-sex marriage was recognized by a government was in the Netherlands in 2001, just 16 years ago. First time in the history of the world. That would be millennia. That would be thousands of years. First time. And then within now, the intervening 16 years, things have changed rapidly. So in our own country, the first state to legalize same-sex marriage was in Massachusetts in, in 03. And then just two years ago, in 2015, the Supreme Court made it legal in all 50 states, or to put it another way, made it illegal not to allow same-sex marriage. It's going to take years. It's going to take decades. It's going to take generations for us to see the effects of that on society. Nobody knows exactly what that's going to mean, but that's the point. We don't know what it's going to mean, and yet we do it very quickly, and we overturn thousands of years of wisdom and history. So history gives a sense of stability, and without it, you don't have that anchor. Third, a recognition that our current blessings are an inheritance from previous generations should result in humility. The antidote to the iconoclasm, that is just tear it down mentality, and the arrogance of our individualistic culture is a realization that we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before. So the idea there with this humility is, you know, if we know something about history and have an appreciation for what those in history have provided for us, then we will have the idea, you know, maybe those people had a good reason for the things that they did. Maybe they weren't all stupid. You know, young people think that about their parents until they become old enough to make some of their own decisions. And then they say, as we've probably all said, to ourselves at least, every year my parents become more wise. Maybe those people had good reason to do the things they did. And maybe we should at least know what the reason is before we go and change it. So a man named G.K. Chesterton has this famous illustration on that. It's called his his fence illustration. And Chesterton said, say you have a, a fence or a gate erected across a road. So you've probably gone down a dirt road at times, looked like a driveway, and then there's a you get a little bit into it and there's a gate going across it. So a gate or a fence across a road. He says the more modern type of reformer says, goes up to it and says, I don't see the use of this, let's clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, if you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then when you can come back and tell me that you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. In other words, don't destroy it until you know why it's there first. And maybe after you think about why it's there, maybe it's there for a good reason after all. So that's the kind of humility that history should provide for us. Fourth, in light of God's providential work in history, we ought to come away from our study with a renewed sense of responsibility. 
The sovereign God has placed us in this moment of history. It's our awesome privilege and responsibility to pass the baton to the next generation of believers. So you have that kind of humility that kind and responsibility given in Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Paul, writing to his young protege, Timothy, he says this to him. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So I'm passing on what I received. Now you, Timothy, are going to faithfully pass on what you received from me to others. In chapter 2 and verse 2, the things you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will be qualified to teach others also. So with all of that, there is value then to, to history. So if you're somebody who hates history, you may still hate history as we go through this. Hopefully not, though. If you think about those advantages and many others could be listed as well. So I say on that course description page, this course will survey the broad sweep of church history with a focus on those events and issues that gave rise to the Protestant Reformation and then analyze the important issues that flowed from it and that still have relevance for us today. So as I go through this, I am going to take a what I call a so what approach. So what does it matter that so-and-so did such-and-such in a particular year? So we aren't going to just go through names and dates. That's what a lot of people associate history with, just memorizing a bunch of names and dates. And the truth is, I don't care that much that you remember the names or the dates. It comes in handy to frame things in your mind. But I don't care that much about that. But what I want you to have an understanding of is why these things happen and how they affect us and how they affect the mission that God has called his, his people to. So we're going to be looking at the, the Reformation, but before we get started, I want to play a three-minute video. We'll see if I can get the thing started. The church was born 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ commissioned his disciples to spread the gospel or good news to the ends of the earth. Jesus told them he was inaugurating a new kingdom of truth and grace where the last would be first and the first would be last. Jesus spent a lot of time feeding the hungry, healing the sick. Jesus prayed that the love between his followers and their unity would define his church. Why do we need church unity? We need church unity because it's essential for integral witness. If we wish to be believed, we have to show the, the unity of Christians. That unity, however, never came easily. From the beginning, there were factions, heresies, and breakaway movements. A millennium later, 
The church is divided into rival Eastern Orthodox and Western Catholic factions. In the 11th century, they excommunicated each other. So if the East is right, everybody in the West is bound for hell, excommunicated. The Western church's power and wealth grew. By the 16th century, the church is seen as greedy and immoral, up for sale to the highest bidder. Most people in Europe knew that the church needed to think. What was missed by many Protestants was that throughout this whole period, there's a Catholic reform going on. The call for reform is going on for at least 300 years before. It's in this setting that an obscure German monk named Martin Luther nails 95 pieces to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, risking his life as he challenges the church to reform. It became, if you will, the spark that exploded the powder keg of the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. Luther's bravery will set up a movement that places Christ's death, not church hierarchy, at the center of humanity's relationship with God. There are no other mediators between God and man. Jesus Christ is the loving gift of the loving Father. Yet Luther's actions set off an unprecedented firestorm that will send Western culture into centuries of turmoil. There's a certain kind of tragic element fighting among Christians that even broke out at times into actual combat. Did it go too far? Those are, those are really hard questions to, to answer. I think Luther was too vulnerable, uh, and I think he fell into opposition so quickly. What the Reformation unleashed is an incredible dynamism in the church, and I don't think you can put that gene back in the This is the Reformation, and it changed everything. So at the bottom of that course description then, last line in that last paragraph before the recommended reading, I say the historical was in our class will be subjected to the biblical ought in order that we might for the future both learn both what to promote and what to avoid. So you notice I've got those two words, was and ought, in parenthesis, or uh, underscored. So there's what happened, there's what was, but then there's the way things ought to be. And we'll compare the two so that we can learn from history for the for the future. Now, down at the uh, bottom, recommended reading, you see five volumes that are listed there. All of them, if you're a history buff, would be of help to you. But books are not cheap, and if you're not a Kindle person, a, a digital book person, then printed books are getting more and more expensive. But the two that, if you only bought two, the two I'd recommend are the first one, Christianity Through the Centuries, and then fourth from the bottom, uh, second from the bottom, fourth down, Church History and Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. We have both of those in our resource center. So you could pick up one or both there, and we can order some more if necessary. The other books are helpful as well. You see the third one there, History of the Christian Church. That's a classic, but you also see that it's eight volumes and 7,000 pages. 
So I have I have that in a couple forms. I have the eight-volume form. Then I've got it in uh, just uh, one massive volume. How they bound that together, I don't know. And But it's such a classic that you can actually find it in digital form for like as little as $1.99 that you can read on your on your computer. But it's massive. Now, from that video, one of the... One of those interviewed said this, the Reformation was the spark that exploded the powder keg of the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. So it was the spark that exploded the powder keg. A powder keg means that this has been there and it's been, it's been dry and waiting to be ignited for a good while. So it's kind of like kindling that's waiting to be sparked and then starts a fire. That's the way many historians see then the Reformation. So if we're going to understand the Reformation, we need to understand something about what was going on for 15 centuries that led to that. So I'm going to spend today, and I'm going to spend a few weeks, looking at what led up to the Reformation so that we'll have a better understanding of why it happened as it did. So that brings us then to page two in your notes in the first lesson. The first couple of lessons look at ancient church history from 33 AD to 312. So from the time the church started to a pivotal point that we'll talk about in the year 312. This lesson's titled The Seed of the Church. The student of church history cannot help but marvel at the speed with which the apostles' teaching was supplanted by man-made doctrine. And the believing student cannot help but mourn this tragedy. How did that happen? We're going to see that relatively quickly. After Jesus commissioned his first followers, the apostles, that within decades, the seeds of Problems later for the church were already being sown. So how did that happen? How could the church founded by the apostles and upon their teaching so quickly become so thoroughly corrupt? This lesson will briefly review the rise of the New Testament church as well as the second and third century seeds of heresy that bore evil fruit in the years to follow. And it was just that kind of fruit that the reformers would need to uproot many centuries later. So I want to spend some time reviewing with you the beginning of the church and its expansion so that we can see how these seeds were were planted. Many of you are familiar with what we call the Great Commission that Jesus gave to his apostles. So Jesus completed his earthly ministry. He did his teaching, his healing. He died for the sins of his people. He was buried and raised. And just before he ascended back to the Father, he gave final instructions to his first followers. And you'll find those final instructions in three places. The most famous statement of those final instructions is in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the last two verses of Matthew. That's where Matthew signs off, because that's where Jesus, in effect, signed off and ascended back to the Father and then left this mission to his apostles to start. 
And then you find it again in the last chapter of Luke, in Luke chapter 24. And that's again the last chapter of Luke, just like Matthew 28 is the last chapter of Matthew, Luke 24. And Jesus says in verse 46 of Luke 24 that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations. But then he adds something. It's going to begin at Jerusalem, beginning at Jerusalem. So Luke added a couple of things that Matthew didn't tell us. He tells us the content of the preaching. It's going to be repentance and forgiveness of sins. He also tells us where it's going to start. It's going to start in Jerusalem. Jesus says in Luke 24 and verse 50, he says, So stay in the city until you receive power from on high. Stay in the city. What city is that? Jerusalem. He said it's going to start, begin in Jerusalem. And then you have the fifth book in your New Testament, the book of Acts also written by Luke. Luke is picking up where he left off in the Gospel of Luke. He left off in Luke 24 with Jesus giving those instructions, repentance and forgiveness of sin will be preached to all nations, stay in the city until you receive power, and now Luke picks up there. In Acts chapter 1, you find the third statement of the Great Commission. We have it listed for you here in your notes. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of of the earth. So Luke picks up where he left off, repeats the, the Great Commission, and then for 27 chapters following, from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 28 of the book of Acts, he documents the beginning of the Great Commission, starting in Jerusalem and then expanding outward. So that's what, you, that's what you have here. The book of Acts, I say here, records the historical expansion of the faith just as the Lord had predicted it would. And how did that happen? That's what we have on the rest of page two. It starts on the day of Pentecost, a Jewish celebration in the city of Jerusalem that happened annually 50 days after Passover. That's why it's called Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. And so this was something that happened every year, 50 days after Passover. And Luke starts out chapter 2, saying when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all gathered together in one place. Now why were they gathered together? Because Jesus said, go and wait. So that's what they're doing. They're waiting in Jerusalem. And he says, does Luke, this happened when the day of Pentecost had fully come. So why does he say it happened on the day of Pentecost? That's Luke's way of telling you how long they've been there waiting. It's 50 days after Passover. Remember, Jesus died at Passover. He was crucified at Passover. And they are now 50 days past that. So when did Jesus give them this command to go and wait? And how long have they been waiting? Well, he died on Passover. He had three days in the grave. And then Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, Acts 1, 3, Luke says Jesus showed himself alive for 40 days. So after he raised, he walked around for 40 days in his resurrected body. And then at the end of that 40 days, that's when he says to them, here's your mission. So that's 43 of those 50 days accounted for. They've been in Jerusalem for about a week. That's what Luke's saying. They've been waiting for about a week, and now after they've been there for about a week, they're together, 
And then the Holy Spirit is given to them. They receive this power that Jesus promised to begin the mission. The church begins at that time, and the mission begins at that time simultaneously, and they move forward together. Acts chapter 1 says there was a group numbering about 120 there. And then after the Holy Spirit comes and Peter, the Apostle Peter, preaches a message to the people gathered there. It says those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. First church in Jerusalem, first day, 3,000 people. Then Luke documents the expansion of the church. Starts in Jerusalem, moves outward. Jerusalem and beyond. Acts chapter 4, many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Now, that's just the number of men. That's just the number of males. So you start with 3,000 and now within fairly short order, you've got many thousands more. And then Acts chapter 6 and verse 7 says, the word of God spread. The number of disciples increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So still, you've got one church in one place, namely Jerusalem. But it's huge. And you have secular witnesses to this fact as well. Bottom of page two, Josephus, first century Jewish historians, estimated the normal population of Jerusalem to be about 50,000, but it would swell to about 3 million during feasts like Pentecost, when pilgrims would sojourn to the holy city. Even if his figures are wildly mistaken, it shows that the numbers that Luke recounts in Acts are quite plausible. That's contrary to those who say that 5,000 and more is not possible for the population of Jerusalem. There could not have been that many Christians that quickly in Jerusalem. Well, you had several million people who would gather for these, these feasts. And then Tacitus, a Roman historian, again, first century, commented on the treatment of the early Christians. Top of page 3. To suppress the rumor that he had set fire to Rome, Nero fabricated as culprits and he punished with the most refined cruelties a notoriously depraved class of people whom the crowd called Christians. The originator of the name, Christus, had been executed in the reign of Tiberius by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. First, the self-acknowledged members of the sect were arrested. And then on their information, now notice this, a vast multitude was condemned. So what this Roman historian is saying is that they went after Christians and they would go after the leaders first and then they would torture information out of them. And then based upon that, a vast multitude was condemned as well. So note that phrase, vast multitude. Tacitus was not a friend of the faith and thus would not be interested in lying about the popularity of the faith. This shows the recognition of the rapid growth of Christianity, that there was a vast multitude very quickly. In a mere 31 years from its inception, Christianity had reached vast multitudes in a place like Rome that is more than 1,500 miles from Jerusalem. So who did that? Who spread the faith, Christianity, as far as the capital of Rome? It was most likely pilgrims to Jerusalem who were converted and they took their newfound faith back to the capital city. 
Acts 2 verse 10 notes that the visitors to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost included visitors from Rome. And later Paul would write to the church there, your faith is being reported all over the world. All right? So that's how it starts. The church starts starts in Jerusalem. It catches wildfire, as it were. It is spread primarily through these visitors who have come to Jerusalem for feasts like uh, on the day of Pentecost, taking it all the way back to, to Rome. But then there is opposition. Opposition to the church. Opposition in the first century in the form of both persecution and of heresy. Now, first of all, persecution on page 3. We read in the book of Acts with that very first church in Jerusalem that there was opposition from the religious leaders. So you have the Jewish Sanhedrin. And you have this uh, select group of 15 elders, Jewish elders, that are the religious ruling body. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And they met to determine what they were going to do about these apostles spreading the gospel. Chapter 5 says, When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and they sent to the jail for the apostles. So the apostles, as you read through the book of Acts, they're harassed by the by the religious leaders. And we see that in the martyrdom of Stephen. So the first Christian martyr is one of these first deacons in that first church in Jerusalem, a man named Stephen. And the end of Acts chapter 7 tells us they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Many of you remember that one of the key persons in the rest of the book of Acts and in much of your New Testament is introduced to us in that story. There's a young man named Saul of Tarsus. And the Bible tells us that Saul held the coats of those who were throwing the stones to kill Stephen. And by doing so, he approved of Stephen's death. And so he joined in in the persecution before his conversion. So there's the martyrdom of Stephen, bottom of page 3. Then there is the dispersion. Because of this persecution happening to the church in Jerusalem, now Jesus' prediction that it's going to begin in Jerusalem and go to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, this starts to happen, but it starts to happen because of this persecution. Acts chapter 8, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So Jesus had said it's going to be Jerusalem, then it's going to go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, how's it going to get to Judea and Samaria? Persecution is one of the ways that happened. People fled, they went to these outer regions and they took the gospel, the gospel with them. Now, at this time in the history of the church, this early history of the church, Judaism, that's the religion coming out of the Old Testament, Judaism is in Latin called a religio licita. It's a legal religion. Judaism is a legal religion. And as long as Christianity is seen as connected to Judaism, then it's, then it's, then it's okay. But that didn't last very long. 
Christians began to distinguish themselves as not being willing to engage in, for example, emperor worship. This was an internal, primarily an internal religion, not an external religion. And so as a result, they would pray silently. They would close their eyes. It wasn't ostentatious like the Roman pagan religions were. And this created some real suspicion that these people were conspiring somehow against the, against the Roman government. There were rumors, in fact, of cannibalism regarding these early Christians. The reason cannibalism took as a rumor is because they believed when they celebrated the Lord's Supper that they were partaking of the Lord's body. This is my body. And this is my blood. And so the pagans who heard that accused them of, of cannibalism. So persecution was one of the means of opposition to the church. And then top of page four, second means was heresy. Examples of false teaching in the church can be found in Paul's letters to Corinth and to Galatia. Note that at this early stage of the church's development, the apostles handled all matters of truth. Now I want you to just note that line. At this early stage of the church's development, the apostles handled all matters of truth. And the reason is that's going to be important as we look at the seeds for what developed an apostasy, a falling away from truth that would ultimately result in the Reformation. One of those seeds is in the line I just gave there. That at this stage of the church's development, the apostles handled all matters of truth. But see, the apostles are only going to live so long. And when the apostles die, then what happens? Then who takes over for the apostles? And we'll see in church history what happened after the apostles died. So you've got first century opposition and persecution in heresy, but then after the first century, post first century opposition, likewise, more persecution and more heresy. You had persecution in a couple of forms. You had just sporadic persecution from 100 to about the mid third century, 250 AD. Here are a few examples of those. Pliny the Younger persecuted the church in the year 112. 112. He wrote to his superior, someone named Trajan. He asked, uh, well, how should I handle these Christians? And he told Trajan, this is the way I handle them. Tell me if this is right. And he says, when I am given information that somebody is a Christian, I call them in and I question them three times. If after questioning them three, t- three times, they still admit to being a Christian, I have them executed. And Trajan said, that's the way to handle it. So that's what he did. Now that was a local and uh, sporadic, that's why I call it sporadic here, persecution. But it's an example of the kinds of things that went on. Polycarp in the city of Smyrna. This is in the mid-2nd century, about 150 A.D. We're going to see Polycarp's name down at the bottom of page 4 again in just a bit. But who is he? He's He's a disciple of, Polycarp is a disciple of the Apostle John. So you have the 12 apostles and then the apostles had people that they discipled and one of the chief disciples of the apostle John was this guy Polycarp. 
Polycarp was executed in Smyrna in the mid-2nd century. And then you have Justin Martyr, again, mid-2nd century. And you see his name there, Martyr? So that's where we get the name, Martyr, for Christians who are executed for their, their faith. So you had sporadic persecution, then you had systematic persecution beginning in the mid-3rd century, 250. Decius was a Roman magistrate, and he passed an edict that everyone had to offer sacrifice to the gods and to the emperor. And further, you received a certificate called a libellus to prove that you did this. Well, some Christians gave in and did it because they were afraid of the persecution. Many did not, and many were were killed. After that persecution, after he died, that policy was done away with, at least for a time. But after he died, the church had a big issue now. What do we do with these people who are Christians, but they, in effect, denied their faith by bowing to Caesar? And it was a real real controversy for, for the church. Then you had another in the early 300s, Diocletian. He banned... Christians to meet together. He burned churches. He imprisoned Christians. He later ordered sacrifice to the Roman gods. Hear this. The historian Eusebius said that the jails under this persecution, the jails became so crowded with Christians, there was not enough room for the criminals under that particular persecution. So, persecution went on in sporadic fashion. Under Decius and Diocletian, it went on in a systematic fashion, as a matter of policy. And then there was continued heresy. Gnosticism is one of the heresies. The word Greek word gnosis means knowledge. So Gnostics were the knowers. We have secret knowledge that's been given to us. And... In your New Testament, you have what's called incipient Gnosticism taking place in some of the cities where the gospel went. One of those was the city of Colossae. The book of Colossians was written to it. But the background to the book of Colossians includes this incipient Gnosticism, that we have a knowledge that other people don't have. And Paul's writing in part against that when he says in chapter 2 of Colossians, in him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you are being told, Colossians, by these false teachers that there's some hidden knowledge beyond Christ. And Paul is saying, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. Now, one of the key tenets of Gnosticism was this Greek idea of a dualism between the physical and the immaterial, between the soul and the body. Plato, the Greek philosopher Plato, called the body, the physical body, the prison house of the soul. That the soul is imprisoned in the, in the physical body. So the body, by Gnostics, was considered to be bad. It was considered to be evil. Now, this had an effect upon Christian doctrine because one of the key Christian doctrines is that God took a body, that God 
became a human. Gnostics said that couldn't happen because the body is evil. And that's why you have references to this, allusions to this in your New Testament. In 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, John says, anyone who denies that Christ has come in the flesh, he says is an antichrist. So there was that denial going on, but it was going on, this is what's behind it. The body is evil, God could not have inhabited a body. And yet, of course, Christianity teaches that. So you have Gnosticism, you have Marcionism, named after a heretic named Marcion. And he hated the Jewish religion and the Jewish scriptures. And so he created his own canon of the of the scriptures and excluded much of what we know as, as the Bible. Then Montanus is another heretic, Montanism. And it was a belief in the work of the Spirit that was mystical, that is, the Holy Spirit does not work through the mind. The Holy Spirit bypasses the mind and goes directly to your spirit. We have that today. Much of the charismatic movement today in Christianity is mystical in that same sense. So you have that opposition going on. The first three centuries of the church. Persecution and heresy. What's the response of the church? Well, the first response is that the church grew. So that's the great news. In fact, Tertullian, one of these early church fathers, has this famous statement. I have it for you there. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more Christians you kill, the more Christians we gain. Their, their witness, and, and in fact, the Greek word for witness and testimony in your New Testament is martyrion. The more of them you martyr, the more testimony their life and their death gives. And more people come to Christ. So the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church continued to grow. Another response, though, important response, was the teaching of the apostles. Apostolic teaching. But remember I told you to note up at the top of page 4, at this early stage of the church's development, the apostles handled all matters of truth. But then the apostles die. By the end of the first century, you don't have any more apostles. They're all dead. You don't have any more of the original authorized emissaries of Jesus. They're gone. They have particular abilities, apostolic abilities, that Christ gave to them. They were able to do things because Christ commissioned them to do them that other people can't do. They can walk up to, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John can walk up to a guy who is lame from birth and they can look at him and they can say, get up and walk. None of the guys on TV can do that. They can all fake that. They can't do that. These guys could do that. They could raise people from the dead. So Peter raised a teenage girl from the dead. None of the guys on TV can do that. And none of the people in the 2nd century or the 3rd century could do that. Further, Jesus had said to these apostles that I'm going to 
give you the Holy Spirit after I leave. And the Holy Spirit is going to guide you into all truth. And he's going to bring to your remembrance everything that I've commanded you. That's a special gift that Jesus gave to the apostles. To remember everything that he said. Now why? Why are they going to have to remember everything he said? Because they're going to write stuff down. They're going to write scripture. They're going to tell it to others who are going to write scripture. So another thing that nobody else could do then was produce scripture. Because the apostles are gone. So with the passing of the apostles, there's this huge issue about what are we going to do now? Who are you going to turn to? When there's heresy, who's going to straighten it out? Back when the apostles were alive, it was kind of like Ghostbusters. Who are you going to call? You're going to call the apostles. But they're gone. So, the response of the church was apostolic teaching. The apostles are gone, but carry on their teaching. And it was carried on in a number of ways. One of those was through the what's called the apostolic fathers. The apostolic fathers are those who are leaders of the church in the next generation after the apostles. So I list a couple of them, famous ones here. Clement of Rome. And Clement was a disciple of Peter, the apostle Peter. Polycarp, I've already mentioned, he was martyred in the middle of the second century. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. Now we're going to see that, though. That's all a good idea. I think as you guys are sitting here, you'll probably agree with me. If you try to put yourself in the year 100 and the apostles have died, what are we going to do? Let's look to these people who were closest to them, who had their message passed on to them and then let's follow them it's all good, it's all fine until you get to something later called apostolic succession apostolic succession and what that is that gave rise to the Pope the idea that there's an unbroken line of succession from says the Roman Catholic Church, Peter, to then someone named Linus. We have no idea who that is, but that's what Roman Catholicism says. And then ultimately Clement would have been a bishop of Rome, and then it's out of this line comes the papacy, the Pope. But the seed of all of that was the need to do something after the apostles have died. Turning to apostolic fathers later became apostolic succession, which turned out to be a bad thing for the church, as we'll see. So apostolic teaching carried on through what are called the apostolic fathers and then apologists, bottom of page four. So apologists, that sounds like people who are saying, I'm sorry, it's not what it is. So the Greek word in your New Testament, apologia, means a defense. So an apologist is one who defends the faith. And you had then Christians who did that. They put pen to to paper to defend the faith against attacks. Justin Martyr, who was executed, as we saw, 
But he wrote something called the Apology, the Defense. And then Aristides wrote one as well. The complete work that Aristides wrote was discovered in 1889. About 1,800 years after he wrote, they discovered his writing. So there were apologists, top of page 5. There were also polemicists. And an apologist is someone who defends the faith. A polemicist is someone who attacks those who believe contrary to the faith. So Irenaeus is one such. He wrote a book called Against Heresies, a polemic against false teaching. And Tertullian was another. So apostolic teaching in the form of the apostolic fathers, in their writings, the apologists, the polemicists. But then there was the apostolic writing, the writings of the apostles themselves. That is scripture. And to combat Marcion's canon, remember I said Marcion's this guy who developed his own Bible. To combat that and other heresies, the church began to officially recognize those books that were authoritative to go into your New Testament. Now notice, the prime criterion for determining that a book is to be part of the Bible was that of apostolicity. That is, it was written by an apostle or under the supervision of an apostle. But again, it's all being attached to the apostles. Now, this apostolic apostolic writing. So there were councils that met to combat Marcion and others and to make sure that Christians understood that these were heretics and they were creating their own Bible. And so they delineated those books that were true authoritative books from the apostles. Before I move on, I just want to make sure you're clear that no council gave authority to any book of the Bible. They simply recognized the authority those books already had. Why did they have authority? Because they were written by the apostles. That's why. So a lot of people mix that up. And in fact, Roman Catholicism says that. Look, it was our councils that gave you the Bible. No, it didn't. The Bible was because the apostles had written it. And the councils simply recognized the authority that those books already had. And they did that in contradiction to the heretics that were saying otherwise. So you had apostolic writing in the scriptures and then apostolic authority. This developed after the death of the apostles in order to keep unity in the church. We will see that this had severe detrimental consequences for the church in succeeding centuries as it laid the foundation for the papacy. So you can see them now. You can see the position they're in. There's all this opposition. There's heresy. There's persecution. The apostles are gone. Who are we going to look to to keep the church unified both in what it believes and in its perseverance? And so apostolic authority was passed on to people who were not apostles so that later the things they said could be on par with what the apostles had written. 
So now, or later, centuries later, because of this, you could have pronouncements of the Pope ex cathedra. That's Latin for from the chair. Ex cathedra. From the chair of Peter. Because we're successors to Peter. And now when we speak from the chair with the authority of Peter, now what we pronounce is equal in authority to what Peter or Paul or anybody else said. So now, if the Pope says, for example, that the Pope is infallible, then that's truth on a par with scriptural truth. That happened in the year 1870 that the Pope promulgated a dogma that the Pope is infallible. Or, if you have a pronouncement from the Pope that says that Mary was born without the stain of original sin, that she was immaculately conceived, which is something that the Pope declared and that the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Now, that was declared in the year 1854. 1854, the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception in Roman Catholicism is not the conception of Jesus. It's the conception of Mary. Most people don't know that. Most Roman Catholics don't know that. In my years talking to people when I worked a real job as a computer guy and I would talk to people and I would run into Roman Catholics and they would ask me what's the difference between a Baptist and a Catholic and I would say, well, let me give it to you this way. Tell me what the Immaculate Conception is. And without exception, only one person was the exception, one person. And over a hundred people have asked this. Only one Roman Catholic got it right. They would say, well, that's the conception of Jesus, the miraculous conception of Jesus. And I say, look, the Bible teaches Jesus was miraculously conceived in Mary. You believe that and we believe that. But that's not what the Immaculate Conception is. The Immaculate Conception in Roman Catholicism is another conception, that of Mary in her mother, Saint Anne. Now, when you look in the Bible, there is no Saint Anne. When you look in a Roman Catholic Bible, there's no Saint Anne. But the Pope has apostolic authority. So he can pronounce that to be true, and it's equally true as is the conception of Jesus miraculously in Mary. 1950. The Pope declares as dogma, authoritatively, that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven. That it doesn't say she never died. Roman Catholicism has never told us whether she ever died. But if she did die, she wasn't dead very long. So she either didn't die and went directly into heaven, or she died and shortly thereafter was assumed into heaven. But Mary is in heaven according bodily, according to Roman Catholicism, because the Pope pronounced that as a dogma. Now, if you're Roman Catholic, you have to believe that Mary was immaculately conceived, that Mary lived a sinless life, that Mary never married, 
or excuse me, never had any children after Jesus. She was a perpetual virgin, the ever virgin Mary. You have to believe that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven. You have to believe all of that on pain of hell because that's just as authoritative as anything you'll find in your Bible or a Roman Catholic Bible. Now, where did that all come from? That came from these seeds. And a number of abuses occurred because of that kind of authority over the centuries that gave rise to the Reformation. We're going to see that further in lesson number two next week, okay? So let's pray, and we'll pick up with lesson two next Wednesday. Father, we thank you for allowing us to consider these issues of the history of your church. It's your church that you started to carry out your purposes. And yet, Lord, sin being what it is, and Satan being in opposition as he is, there are all kinds of things that have happened over the centuries of your church such that it has not represented you as you designed. So help us to learn from that. Help us to learn accurately what was and what is versus what should be according to your word. And then having learned that, help us to put those lessons into practice in our lives and as your church. We ask you to go with us this week as we serve you and bring us back together next week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.